Good afternoon, everybody, and thank you for joining us. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Dick Morningstar. I'm the founding director of the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center, and we are very pleased uh, to welcome you here today uh, in today's event on an issue which is critical uh, to global energy security and the future of the planet. The discussion will focus on the global transition uh, to renewable energy and how the rapid investment and installation of renewables around the world will impact climate change, energy security, and economic development. And I would also like to thank our partners at the International Renewable uh, Energy Agency for all of their help in organizing and making this uh, event possible. And I believe they are actually hosting the reception, Ooh, a little thunder for everybody, uh, hosting the uh, uh, reception at, uh, uh, after the program is over. Now, if the weather's really bad, we can have you here to 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock or, you know, <clears throat> whatever it takes. But today's, uh, today's program really, I think, is another indication of the Global Energy Center's commitment uh, to working on alternative technologies and work, working on a clean environment and climate change. Uh, I might also say that we have another climate uh, uh, event in our climate change series, which you'll probably get invitations to on June 17th as part of the EU uh, climate change day. Uh, and in fact, uh, this, is, uh, this is an incredible turnout uh, today. Uh, and uh, again, showing how important this issue is, or as I said earlier, the, maybe it's the wine and cheese, but uh, uh, I, think it's, uh, I think it's the, uh, the subject matter. Hey, that's a joke. You can laugh a little bit. Come on. All right. Ha ha. Okay. Anyway, I also would uh, like to uh, uh, introduce, it's really an honor, Senator John Warner uh, is here, and I uh, know how uh, committed uh, he is uh, uh, to issues and, uh, and his work with the Pew Charitable Trust and other, and other, other things. But <clears throat> we do have uh, uh, an outstanding group of experts to discuss these issues today. Um, today's uh, panel will be preceded by keynote remarks, we hope early, earlier than later, by the Director General of, of Arena, Adnan Amin, as well as Amos Hochstein, who is the Special Envoy and Coordinator for International Energy Affairs in the State Department's Bureau of Energy Resources. Um, as I'm, well... I mentioned that Mr. Amin is running late and we'll, we'll have him speak when he gets here, um, hopefully right after Amos makes his remarks. You can stretch them out a couple of minutes. Uh, but Mr. Amin, who has served as Director General of ARENA since uh, 2011, um, and he brings over 25 years of experience in environmental and sustainable development policy, to furthering the agency's mandate of promoting the adoption and use of renewable energy worldwide. And he's also held many positions in the past, including uh, at the United Nations. Uh, I've been fortunate to work with uh, Amos Hochstein in his role as Special Envoy for International Energy Affairs. Uh, and in that role, Amos advises the Secretary of State and oversees US foreign policy engagement on energy security and on, uh, and on diplomacy. Prior to 
the, his present role, he, he served as the uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Energy Diplomacy, and in addition, spending more than 15 years advising U.S. elected officials and candidates on energy policy initiatives, and also spent many years on the, uh, working on the Hill. Uh, on our panel, we'll have Todd Foley, um, who's the Chief, uh, uh, Chief Strategy Officer at uh, uh, at the American Council on Renewable Energy, ACOR, and he has over 25 years of experience in federal and state policy, renewable energy market design, and business development, so we're lucky to have Todd. Unfortunately, another casualty uh, for today is Mike Carr from the Department of Energy, who was supposed to be here, but he has, unfortunately, uh, some kind of family emergency, which uh, has not allowed him to come. And the moderator uh, for today's panel uh, is uh, Annie Medallia, who's the Deputy Director of the Global Energy Center here at the Atlanta Council. And previously, Annie was a special advisor to both the Special Envoy for Eurasian Energy, to it me, uh, and special advisor to the Special Envoy for International Energy Affairs at the Department of State, who was who's now Amos, but I guess while you were there, it was Carlos, but Amos was the Deputy Assistant Secretary, so you were working, you were working, with, uh, working with him. So she's worked with me, and she's worked with Amos, and she'll be a, a, great, uh, a great moderator today. For the audience and for those who are watching the live webcast, you can contribute to the conversation on Twitter by utilizing the hashtag ACEnergy. Um, and uh, again, that Arena will be hosting a networking reception, which we greatly appreciate following today's event right out here in the lobby. We hope uh, we'll see you all there. And on that note, uh, please extend a warm welcome to the panel, minus the Director General. And uh, Amos, who is going to speak second, will speak first. And hopefully the Director General will be here by the time you finish. Thanks very much. Thank you, Ambassador Morningstar. Um, not good at stretching out, but I'll, I'll try to do a, a, an act, dance act afterwards at the end. Um, first, let me thank uh, the Atlantic Council and Irina, and uh, specifically uh, Ambassador Morningstar for having me back at the, uh, at the Atlantic Council. It's, it's good to be back in this room. Uh, I think that it's, uh, I've been here on a number of occasions, but it, it is uh, uh, different and exciting for me to be here uh, with uh, with Annie Medaglia for my my first event with uh, with Annie Medaglia here, uh, and I'm very excited to be here on her uh, on our first role together, uh, serving on this panel. Uh, this is a uh, this is a critically important issue, and you know, Adnan will talk about um, the remap effort that Irina has done and the the picture of the United States. Uh, and where we are, and I think it's a remarkable picture uh, of the investment and the capabilities and the development in the United States. And one of the, I believe that the reason that this has happened uh, in the United States, why we're making this kind of progress, because at the end of the day, when you look at the kind of innovation that is necessary and, and what's really driving renewables, just like it's driven in almost any other sector, the United States has provided that kind of breeding ground for innovation uh, that has allowed it 
to flourish. And that's, I believe, a, a big part of why we're seeing such success in the United States in integration of creation of the technology and the integration of that technology uh, across the board here in the U.S. and the great advances that we're making. But as Adnan will talk about um, the, what's happening in the United States, the REMAP study, which uh, again is a remarkable effort in collaboration between IRENA, the State Department, and the Department of Energy. Uh, I wanted to take a moment, at, so I don't bore you in doing the same thing, looking at a slightly different aspect of it, which is how I see it from the State Department, from the foreign policy side, from the geopolitical side, of what does this all mean? Uh, how, does it, how does the climate piece fit into the energy access piece? Uh, and how does that all come together as energy security? We are, you know, in my last time here at the Atlantic Council, we all talk a lot about the remarkable transformation in, uh, in the oil and gas sector. And we talk about the price reduction, the remarkable price reduction in oil, uh, down from 115 high just about a year ago in two weeks from now, uh, down to where we are today. And it's an extraordinary subject of conversation and headlines in newspapers across the world. Same goes for natural gas. Prices that were once in Asia at 18 and $20 are now at 10 and $11. In Europe, it's below 10. In the US, we're Henry Hub at you know, $2.60, $0.70. Remarkable. But nowhere nearly as much ink is dedicated to the fact that renewable energy uh, price reduction has been just as spectacular. But you know what the difference is? The conversation today, just a few months after the oil price decline, is all about will it go back up, it went back up to 62, will it go back up to 70, will it go to 80, is it going to stay in the 60s? There is no conversation anywhere about if renewable energy is going to go up. It's all about whether renewable energy is going to go further down and how much is it going to go down. And that's because, unlike in oil and gas, the technological advances that we're seeing in renewable energy are making them cheaper. And the ability to integrate them is getting better. We have a lot of challenges. But the direction of renewable energy is taking on the world stage is making it cheaper, more affordable, and more of an ability to integrate it. We have two issues that when we look at renewable energy, we have two issues that we have to look at. One is the climate impact. And as you know, as we're talking today, we're on the, the road to Paris, the road to COP21. And what are the, the goals that we're all going to be able to hopefully come to an agreement on, a global agreement on reduction of, of emissions? But if we're able to do some of this, we also have to look at the, poverty, the energy poverty and energy access piece of how do we, we solve it. We're not just looking at the very critically important subject of the climate change, but also we're able, if we, some of the same solutions for the climate change piece are what is going to get us past the hump of working towards more energy access when you have over a billion people that lack that access. Now, why is that important? Because we cannot create, we cannot look at creating growth, economic growth, in the places where we want it most, in, the, in developing countries that are working hard to be able to make that economic transition without access to affordable and reliable sources of energy. But if we only look at the classic you know, old school way of looking at things, which is the oil and gas picture, and mainly on the oil side and coal in some places, it's not only that that's the dirtier option and not the option that we owe our next generation, 
but it's also not the most effective aspect. It's not the best route. We have to look at what are the new technologies in renewable energy and in efficiency standards, as well as how do you get the microgrids and new technologies in the power sector to be able to get there. Because if we can integrate those and we can get over some of the challenges that we have today, we are going to be able to solve that problem as well. But this is complicated because we have to look at what is, as we look at the, this road to Paris that I mentioned, it's all about the goals. How do we get that goal? What I think we have to focus on is how do we get those goals and implement them so that they're not just another set of numbers that we announce in press releases country after country. That we look at the real challenges of what for, how do we get there? What's the roadmap after Paris? Because Paris is not enough, as big of a challenge as it is to get there. It's not enough. We have to get to the point that we have a real roadmap of getting there. And that's where I think that, the, that as we look at the geopolitics aspect of this, as we look at the foreign policy role that the United States together with our allies have to play, is to see what does that mean? Now, where are the challenges? And I think that one of the critical things that we face is understanding that we're seeing advances in the technology, but that we're still seeing the same challenges in questions like finance. How do we get there? Why is it not happening more? What's the reliability questions, and how do we get past that? And the, the remarkable thing to me is how equal this is around the world. I came back from a couple of trips recently. One was to Cape Town, where we were at the Africa Utilities Week where this was the entire discussion. Not what's the technology, not what can we do, but how do we do it? And a couple of months before that, I joined Secretary Kerry and then went again afterwards to India for the Renewable Energy Invest, RE Invest conference. And the entire focus on it was how do we, we all know what we want to do. We all know what the goal is. But how do we make that transformation because the money is not there right now? The funding is not there. The financing is not there. And when I go and look and talk to, uh, and when we look at right close to home, Central America and the Caribbean, we have a Caribbean Energy Security Initiative, which I'll get to in a moment, but it's the same question. How do we get past the finance piece to make these kind of projects financeable and bankable? Because the one thing that we know on renewable energy is that there is not enough money in governments around the world collectively to solve this problem. It's going to have to be the private sector that solves this problem. It's not going to be a collective of governments. So what is that role of government? So the way I see it, and I think the way the United States should approach this, is that bringing the government, the efforts of governments together to look at the question of what is government policy, what is public policy, where is that combination of the private sector and the public sector? What is our role? And our role is to facilitate and create the ground and the environment, the investment environment, to allow the private sector to come in and make that investment. That needs to be the role of government. Instead of trying to focus on how do we, and here not the United States necessarily, but individual governments, how does each government think about this in the sense, how do I finance this? How do I solve this from my balance sheet? How do I solve this by putting, uh, appropriating funds for it. What kind of sovereign guarantees do I have to do? That's not the role. 
the, game, the play here has to be what is the enabling environment that governments create to put that together. And let me give you a couple of examples. We have just south of our border, the Caribbean is almost completely reliant on fuel oil, which they get mostly from Venezuela. They're reliant on it because there is a uh, scheme uh, that Venezuela has put together over uh, the last several years, um, Petrocaribe, which doesn't provide the oil, the fuel oil, but it provides the financing, which you can't get in, it's a sweetheart deal you can't get in any bank. So not only do you become addicted to it and reliant on it, you become indebted to it and you can't get beyond it. Now we're talking about a number of islands that all have access to 11 months of sun. Some of these islands have access to geothermal. Some of these have potential of wind and yet they're burning expensive, dirty fuel oil that not only leaves them in economic debt, but in political debt. So what do we need to do? The answer is not, we'll pay for it, or the World Bank will pay for it, or any other international agency will pay for it. But rather, how do we change, how do we support them and work together in changing the underlying legislation, the underlying rulemaking, the underlying regulations that will allow the companies to come in that will allow the private sector that works in the renewable energy sector and the banks that finance them to see this as a economically viable and bankable project. This is something that is entirely doable. And that's at the why we launched, or Vice President Biden launched, the Caribbean Energy Security Initiative, which was not only launched at the beginning to last summer in order to start the work, but was followed up by a, uh, a session with all the heads of state from the Caribbean coming to the United States to Washington. And I'm glad that uh, my friend Adnan Amin was able to join us at that round table. Welcome. Uh, I'm glad you're here. Um, means I can wrap up soon. <laughs> uh, so really, thank you. Um, and joined us in this conversation of how do we all come together to create that enabling environment where it's the private sector, the banks, and government, and agencies such as IRENA, the World Bank, the IDB, et cetera. That, to me, is the kind of example of what we can do around the world. Because a part of it is, for instance, a donor, a donor coordination mechanism. We have seen so much money from the public sector go into renewable energy around the world, whether it's in Sub-Saharan Africa, in the Caribbean, in Central America, and Southeast Asia with very little to show for it afterwards, because it did not follow the model that I just described. But what we can do is if we get, what we've proven is that if we can get the regulations to change, if we can get the ability of governments to see this aspect and to change their environment, the private sector is there and waiting to make that investment. And I believe that's the key of what we can do. As you look at some of the, uh, the comments about the integration of renewables. One of the things I keep hearing is, this has all happened because oil prices were at $110 and $115 a barrel. But the dichotomy always was, if oil goes down, investment in renewable energy will decline. Well, we now have a test case. 
Last September, we started seeing a massive dislocation of oil prices. And the anticipation on CNBC and other places was you're going to see a massive decline in investment in renewable energy. And you know what? That did not happen. Renewable energy investment grew this year over last year. It grew over the period of time of low oil prices. When people did not think that oil prices were going to go back to the $100 days. They thought it would stay low. Not only that, two of the largest oil producers in the world, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, should be on the other side of this. They should be saying, let's do what we've always done. Let's try to kill the technology, try to hope for better days of high oil prices where, and renewable energy is not there. But instead, what do we see? The UAE fighting to host IRENA and to launch Mazdar and to have true investment in renewable energy in their own country. Saudi Arabia is announcing every week new efforts and new initiatives on solar. They understand that we're going to a new world. They understand that efficiency rates have to go up. They understand that for their own economic survival, you can't just rely on oil as, to keep going as it always was. That renewable energy is good for them. It is good for the oil industry. It is good for oil producing states. To me, that's the most encouraging sign. We're at a point where we have made major transitions. And while some here in the United States are still arguing whether or not climate change is real and are arguing whether or not we need to have these kinds of investments, oil producing states are doing what I just described. And five CEOs of major oil companies sent a letter and published it today, just this morning, in time for this event, calling on carbon prices to be set by the international community. So we're seeing that major transition. Everybody gets it. So I think this event today is timely. I, am, uh, I did this at the beginning, Adnan, but I'm going to do it again because you're here now. Thank IRENA for doing the remap exercise. It's not the first one you've done, but it, it is the one for the United States. Uh, I think it shows, again, demonstrates the, the cap what we can do together of working the United States, the State Department, the Energy Department, IRENA, and other organizations coming together to look at this from a data perspective so that we can use that as we look towards implementation. But the conversation that the Atlantic Council is doing here today, I think, is extraordinarily helpful and important. We need to continue to look at this from a critical with a critical eye to see, to advise us in government to work together with the private sector and places like the Atlantic Council of how do we make that difference? How do we make that change? How do we affect that change? And we don't have a lot of time. Paris, everybody's talking constantly about what's going to happen in Paris. I want to expand the conversation to beyond Paris, to what do we do after that? How do we implement this? How do we get it integrated? So a year after Paris, we can start talking not about what the goals were, but the fact that we're already seeing the integration and the implementation of those goals, and we understand what the roadmap is. So I look forward to hearing from you, Adnan, and for the conversation to come. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dick. I must thank you for your kind words, ladies and gentlemen.
great pleasure to be with you today and my deepest apologies for, for the delay. Um, there was a, a thunderstorm in New York and apparently I had to sit in LaGuardia Airport for six hours. That means I had for the first time an opportunity to speak before Amos and say more interesting things than him, but he managed again to speak before me. Uh, the good side is that... <laughs> The good thing is that I can now write a guidebook to the coffee shops of uh, La Guardia, which will be a bestseller uh, after six hours of immersion. But thank you very much uh, for being here today. And uh, uh, let me start by saying a little bit about IRENA. It's possibly the newest international organization uh, with the ambition to be universal. Uh, it became a formal organization just over four years ago. We started with about 60 members. Today we have 170 countries involved. We had the fastest growing international agreement in terms of signatories, Tim Williamson is here, he can attest to this, in the history of these international agreements. And we've had a tremendous transformation of the energy scene in the last four years during this time. I wish I could take credit for that last one, but actually it's the, it's the commitment of investors and governments and financiers around the world that's leading this transition. But the growth of IRENA and its presence on the international stage and the stature it has achieved, I think is a direct uh, uh, reflection of the importance of the energy transition, knowing that 80% of global emissions come from the energy sector, and that if we're going to address decarbonization in any meaningful way, it has to be on the basis of the energy sector. And I think this is what uh, the discussion uh, about REMAP is all about. Um, so in these last four years, as I said, uh, renewables have really become mainstream, from a niche technology to a mainstream technology. We're seeing unparalleled levels of renewable energy investment, capacity, and ambition around the world. And globally, investment flows into renewables reached last year in 2014 US dollars 270 billion, which was a 14% increase on the year before. And capacity additions have exceeded $100 billion per year, greater than fossil and nuclear capacity additions for four years running. So renewables in the global energy mix has overtaken both fossil investment and nuclear combined as the highest capacity addition to power. As ambition from emerging economies has also reached unprecedented levels, we are seeing developing countries that have increased their share of investment from around 20% of global investment about four years ago to around half of global investment, all in emerging economies, and now have the majority of capacity additions to the power sector worldwide. So another dramatic change that we're seeing in terms of renewables investment. And very much on the basis of what Amos was saying, that the business case for renewables is here. It's not a grant charity enterprise anymore. This is a business opportunity through which we can have a growth agenda, not an agenda of limitation. And I think one of the real issues and the problems that we've had of not being able to deal with the climate equation is the fact that we've always approached climate from the point of view of what do we have to limit to achieve carbon emission reduction. I think what renewables presents us for the first time, together with efficiency, is the fact that we can have economic growth, prosperity, employment, income generation, 
on the basis of an income case for a growth agenda that also decarbonizes. And I think this is really the significance of the moment uh, that we are seeing today. If you look around the world, renewable energy continues to make a major contribution to China's economic development and capacity targets of 200 gigawatts of onshore wind and 100 gigawatts of solar PV by 2020 are a testament to this. India has committed, and I was in Delhi when the Prime Minister Modi made this commitment, they've committed to 100 gigawatts of solar PV and 60 gigawatts of wind by 2022, following suit. Now, I don't know how many of you actually get to the field and see physically what 100 gigawatts or 200 gigawatts of solar PV looks like, but it is truly massive. And to see that this level of investment and this level of physical infrastructure is going to build, be built in these economies is something truly remarkable. And if you move from China to the Middle East and Africa and the Americans, Americas, new levels of cost competitiveness for renewable power technologies are also being reached. We see remarkable examples around the world. Onshore wind has recently been completed in Egypt at just over four US dollar cents a kilowatt hour, both in Egypt and Brazil, and unsubsidized, unsubsidized solar PV at just under six US dollar cents per kilowatt hour in Dubai, and around seven US dollar cents per kilowatt hour in Texas and California. This is remarkable. Just to talk a little bit about the Dubai example because they're next door to us. They issued their first 100 megawatt capacity auction. And when the bids came in, <clears throat> they came in at under six US dollar cents a kilowatt hour. That is approximately 25% cheaper than the cheapest cost of gas power generation in Dubai. This is an absolute game changer for the region. What Amos was just saying, they immediately doubled their offering from 100 to 200 megawatts and the Saudi utility that won the bid, Saudi utility that won the bid, immediately accepted, and they have fast-tracked their 800 gigawatts of offering on the market, which has just been announced, and I was in Dubai for that announcement. These are remarkable changes. And these are all changes that indicate the next sector of economic growth is going to be the transformation of the energy sector worldwide. So the cost reductions have been dramatic and sustained also in the US between 2008-2014. The weighted average LCOE of residential solar PV fell by between 42 and 54 percent here in the US. Globally, the price of solar panels themselves have fallen by around 75 percent since 2009 and have plummeted as deployment increases performance in, improves, and scale brings uh, uh, cheaper uh, panels. This virtuous cycle has been unlocked by appropriate support policies for demonstration and deployment, including here in the US, the production and investment tax credits and renewable portfolio standards, which have been in effect in 33 states around the country. And another trigger for such rapid change is concerted and sustainable, sustained investment in research and development and innovation for renewables, which has now expanded beyond technology into regulation, market mechanisms, and business models. And, and just on this, 
The genius of the U.S. has always been in investment, in R&D, looking at the future, and in innovation. The kind of flexible model you have, the openness in thinking that exists in this country, has kept it at the frontiers of science, innovation, and technology. And my message today really is that this is the next frontier of growth. Please take, don't take your eye off it. Don't look at the limitations of the current sense, uh, uh, setting. Don't look or don't allow for a fallback in terms of research and development expenditure because that is an investment in one of the most promising areas of growth we are going to see for the future. So all these innovations are helping to develop emerging technologies such as energy storage that show huge promise in solving key issues with the transition to renewable power, including easing grid integration and management of variable renewables and enhancing power supply quality and security. Flexibility and adaptability are going to be the watchwords behind home battery systems, such as the ones that Tesla has just announced, and other new storage concepts that are being developed to deal with these challenges. In Germany, in January and February, and we know that you know, there's so much distributed generation in Germany that individuals, households, and communities own more than 50% of power generation in, the US, in Germany today. In Germany, 20% of new PV systems were equipped with battery packs, and utility-scale storage for grid management is advancing in tandem. And from Italy to Japan and the US, we are seeing this happening in the technological frontier countries like California. I read something very interesting, because we've been talking a lot about Tesla. <coughs> the Germans have just announced, I think it was Daimler-Benz, that they're not going to be left behind in the battery storage. They are investing heavily in R&D. They see themselves as very credible competitors. In fact, looking for decreases in technology costs below that of Tesla with scale. And the Japanese are not that far behind also. So this is the next frontier of dramatic change that we're going to be seeing. Other grid flexibility and efficiency measures are already deployed at scale today. More accurate weather forecasts. I've seen weather forecasts in German transmission operator systems which have a 2 to 3% variance with the, uh, with the reality every day. This is extraordinary level of accuracy. Smart grid technologies, interconnections, demand side management are now among the options that we have. And network operators like the one I mentioned, 50 Hertz of Germany, are combining these measures to effectively manage variable renewable energy shares in the range of around 40% without large-scale storage. This is, this is a, a dramatic breakthrough also. <clears throat> Effectively harnessing the emerging opportunities in the sector, though, requires market policy and regulatory adjustments, and crucially, the right pricing signals to allow technology cost declines. But the prize for getting the balance right could be a real paradigm shift in the power sector. I must say that uh, one of the things we did look at in the past, this is just a little, if I might digress for a minute, is that we found the soft costs of investment in solar, 
household solar, utilities solar, in the U.S. were dramatically higher than in Europe. And that, to some extent, explained the difference between Germany and the U.S. But with new innovation in policy design in the U.S., we are beginning to see these dramatic changes happening also in the U.S. We think that widespread use of battery storage systems can usher in growth in the market for off-grid households and commercial electricity and fundamental challenges to the traditional centralized utility model, the likes of which we have yet to see. We already know how much pressure some of them are under. We know that E.ON lost half its market capitalization in one year and is now a renewables company, and we are going to see more and more changes to come. But one size doesn't fit all, and countries have to find the appropriate and relevant mix of options for them to seize upon the opportunities that exist in their countries and regions. Our global roadmap, the REMAP 2030, explores such options across the world with the end goal of doubling the share of renewable energy in the world's energy mix by 2030. When we started this analysis, this share was around 18% globally. A doubling means achieving a 36% share by 2030. And re REMAP analysis of 27 economies around the world, accounting for about 75% of ener energy use, shows that such a doubling is feasible, but that if efforts to enhance energy access and efficiency are aligned with modern solutions to make use of the renewable energy potential that we have, we can more than exceed the doubling target, and we can do it more cheaply than we can with alternatives. This is a dramatic piece of news. Today, we are launching our report detailing the options for accelerated uptake of renewables in the United States. And REMAP US was the first country-specific study developed at the request of a member state that has opened the door for us to assess other large economies with the same methodology we can have for compar comparability. And now 40 countries accounting for 80% of global energy used are now engaged in REMAP, and we're forming an ever more detailed picture of how a global doubling of renewables can be achieved. So Amos, you are partially right. The US was the first one we started, but it's the third one we're launching. Obviously, finding the schedule in Washington is not an easy, easy matter. <laughs> REMAP US finds that across all sectors of the country's energy system, power, industry, transport, and buildings, it is technically feasible and affordable to more than triple the renewable share in US total final energy consumption from 7.5% in 2010 to 27% by 2030. That's what I said. I didn't say doubling. It's tripling the share of renewables. REMAP projects that almost half of the country's electricity would be generated by renewables in 2030. 30% would come from variable technologies, and measures are required for their integration into the power system. We see wind power capacity would grow to four and a half times that that is installed today while solar PV power capacity would be seven times greater than what we have today. <laughs> Significant potential for biofuels and heating, advanced bioethanol for transport fuel, contributes to the REMAP projection that 55% of all renewable energy use in the, in, in the U.S. in 2030 would be in the end-use sectors of transport, 
industry and buildings, three to four times more than 2010. And along with the right policies and support for a 27% share of renewables, substantial investment will be needed on top of what is expected today. REMAP foresees necessary investment in renewable energy capacity of 86 billion US dollars per year, which is 38 billion dollars more than annual investment levels under a business as usual scenario. And those, that level of growth we are already beginning to see. We believe it's absolutely feasible that on the basis of the business case for renewables, these numbers are achievable. This will be offset by the savings to the U.S. economy as a whole if the U.S. reached 27% renewables. These savings will total between 30 billion and 140 billion U.S. dollars per year by 2030, accounting for benefits from reduced health effects, CO2 emissions, and so on. In total, a 27% share of renewables would reduce CO2 emissions of the United States by 30% from current 2030 projections, or by 1.6 billion tons per year, which equates to a 33% reduction over 2000, 2005 levels. At a time when much of our attention this year is focused on climate, and we are seeing more and more articles from scientific observers saying the two-degree target may be out of reach, these are the kind of trends that we can hold on to which allow us to look at a positive future. But this means that by reaching 27% renewable, renewables by 2030, the US will make good on its pledge to reduce emissions by 26 to 28% by 2025 that President Obama made as part of the country's historic climate agreement with China. You recall that part of that agreement was that China would reach 20% penetration of renewables together with reaching the uh, decarbonization target that they set. We did the remap for China. We launched it in China. It was done with Chinese experts. Remap China found that we can actually reach 23 to 24%. We had Chinese senior decision makers in the room when we launched it. Please don't tell them I told you this. When we told them this, they said, yes, we know, but we don't want to tell the other side because we want to outperform and put pressure on them. So we know that this is happening. <clears throat> but I, I don't want to go too much into this issue because I know that we are going to have a discussion, uh, but we know that you know huge changes are happening around the world um, with Remap US, we know how the U.S. can maintain its leadership position in this field. We know that the global energy transformation is underway. I was uh, at the Clean Energy Ministerial a few days ago uh, with Secretary Moniz. He started one of his interventions by saying, and I couldn't agree with him more, that we're not uh, uh, talking about the possibility of an energy revolution. The energy revolution is here. We have to decide how we're going to deal with it. That's the position we are at today. And my appeal to this audience is the US should not fritter away the technological knowledge and innovation advantage it has. When I first took my post in the arena, 
One of my very early meetings was with a very passionate advocate for renewables and climate, which is the president of Iceland. And he said to me, you know, this thing is going to really take off. And one thing you should be aware of, this is going to be a competition. This is the next frontier of growth. Countries are going to be competing uh, for industrialization. They're going to be competing for market share. They're going to be competing for trade. And it's going to become very political. So strap in, enjoy the ride. The world is changing. Renewables are uh, in the ascendancy. And we have, for the first time, a growth agenda that can lead us to a climate-safe world. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much. Welcome. Um, so we're going to start off today um, with Todd Foley, who's the Chief Strategy Officer at ACOR. We're going to start talking about the U.S. and then I'll move on to Amos and Anand to talk more about a global um, perspective. Um, so we heard Amos talk about how the renewable power has, its cost has dramatically decreased in the last couple years. Recently read an article saying that solar, um, the annual growth in solar is going to overtake natural gas in the next year in the U.S. So can you walk us through why has this been the case? What are the financial incentives? Do we need to change financial incentives to switch to other types of renewables now? Um, so that would be the first part of my question. The second part touches upon what Anand said that uh, we need about $38 billion more above the base case scenario to achieve the 20% um, renewables and total final energy consumption by 2030. So how are we going to do that? What needs to be done? Um, and can you walk us through kind of the business case for that? Yeah, that's terrific. Uh, great question. Uh, there's a lot there. Uh, I just want to say, uh, you know, thanks for the, the great remarks just delivered by Amos and Adnan as well. Um, I, I think you couldn't be more correct in what's happening uh, in the U.S. and around the world about renewable energy and kind of what it means for our energy markets. Um, and uh, as uh, Amos, as you said, uh, there's, you know, there's this in this in the U.S. and elsewhere. There's this excitement about shale gas, and we hear, hear about the shale gas boom. But I would just reinforce the point that you said that there's just as we're, we're equally as excited in the renewable energy sector as I'm sure they are in the in the gas sector, uh, because what's what's been going on is quite dramatic and quite remarkable, and portends great things, uh, you know, going forward. And as Adnan, you, as you pointed out. Renewable energy is on the ascendancy very much so, including here in the U.S. Uh, you know, just to, to your point, uh, Annie, uh, uh, last year, just to give a sense of scale, 50% uh, of all new power capacity added in the United States came from renewable energy. 30% uh, from solar. Solar overtook wind for the first time in terms of scale. This is, this is sizable, yes, from a, a modest base, but this is, this is a sizable contribution in our power markets. And this builds on what happened in 2012 when it was 49%, just a little over, uh, tick over 49%. So these are material levels, and they can have, that's going to have a material impact, and it suggests where, where the industry is headed. And what, uh, to Andy, your point about what's going on in the sector, uh, it's, a, it's a combination of things that are coming together that is enabling even a greater opportunity going forward. Uh, it's, it's great innovation, Amos, as you pointed out, uh, huge innovation within the in renewable energy sector, redu reducing the costs of, uh, of the technology. Uh, there are, you know, I was at, uh, at a renewable energy company before I joined, joined ACOR, all about cost reduction because, of course, you've got to get those costs down to compete. Huge interest in that. It's, you know, and that's been, been worked on. So we've seen dramatic cost reductions in solar and wind and the other technologies uh, 
uh, system costs down 50% in solar, but panels down, you know, like you said, about 78%. Wind turbines down 58% in cost in the last five or six years. Amazing progress. So the technologists, the companies are doing their part in that front. The financiers are also doing quite a bit. You know, both of you touched on the importance of finance because how is this going to happen with limited resources in the public sector governments? Uh, I, I think the, actually the answer has been and will continue to be the private sector. The issue is how do we leverage the capital that's out there? So the financial markets, the capital markets in the U.S. and around the world have been innovating too. Uh, they've, uh, in fact, the, the, the very, probably the, you know, we hear a lot about what's going on in the residential side in solar. Think of Solar City, Sunrun, Vivint, and others, SunPower, and Sun Edison. Well, you know, what's very interesting, not only, of course, is the technology innovation, but it's the finance innovation to get solar to homeowners uh, like a power bill, where you don't have to put up front capital costs and you pay less than your brown power rate. That's a huge financial innovation that's, you know, that's causing real uh, solar to boom. And that's important. And there are a number of other things that the, the finance sector is doing along with the companies to lower the cost of capital. The other piece, of course, is policy. Uh, you can't escape it. Uh, our, you know, energy are the, probably the, the most heavily oriented you know, segment of our economy of, against all others. So it's not whether we have uh, uh, you know, uh, policy to, and whether we have a competitive playing field or, and, and policy and so on. It's act, you know, policy guides all of our energy, energy markets always has in this country and around the world and will continue. The issue is what are the policy mechanisms that enable competition to, to take and to flourish on a, on a competitive playing field. Now, in the U.S., we've had a combination of federal and state policies that have really dr helped drive the market, take advantage of these and, and, and support these important private sector uh, accomplishments. But, but it's, we've been challenged. On the state side, the state RPSs have been huge in driving uh, capacity, but they're flat in the aggregate. There are three to five gigawatts in, in the, in called for in the existing state RPSs, which is well below what the market could do. Uh, again, like I said, 2012, uh, the market did 16 gigawatts in the, th excuse me, 13 gigawatts in the United States. So uh, the, uh, the RPSs are three to five gigawatts. There's a whole lot more the industry can do with the right policy signal. But that need, they need to be reinvigorated. And some states have stepped up. California, Governor Brown proposed earlier this year, going to 50% renewables by 2030. He's already at 23%, and they've contracted essentially for 30% plus. So it's not, you know, they're, they're on their way. And there are other things that they're doing to enable their power markets on the integration front to get there. So, so we got a lot going on there. So it's a combination of all of that, I think, that's really, uh, it's really driving this. And, and it's creating a building on the U.S. leadership to start, but, but it's truly a global market, global players. Uh, there are, I think, commonalities across these markets, uh, especially in the finance side. You touched on Annie on the finance, and I'll close on that. But, uh, you know, the, it is about capital, and it's, you know, there's plenty of capital in the markets. You know, financiers will tell you that all the time. Our members are the biggest financiers, virtually doing, I think, 95% of all renewable energy that's being done in the United States. Uh, it's the, they're the biggest players. Uh, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Citi, et cetera, Wells Fargo. They, there are plenty of capital. The issue is what's the signal to the market? What's the policy signal to them on where to deploy their resources? And I think that's a big question. Uh, here in the U.S. and globally, because it's that policy signal that's going to determine, you know, the capital flows. Plenty of capital, and there are also some in interesting policy initiatives that have been introduced to uh, to reduce the cost of capital here in the U.S. Uh, uh, there's uh, uh, Senator Coons, and and uh, on a bipartisan basis, uh, with uh, Senator Murkowski and others, have introduced legislation to enable renewables to qualify for master limited partnerships, which has helped scale up the conventional oil and gas boom we've seen in the last few years, bringing 
more liquid, lower cost capital to the market, making that available. If we had that for renewables, that's, that's an important plus. Uh, and then finally, the tax credits, the renewable energy tax credits. These have been very successful. Uh, you know, the, the, the policy signal is very, is very important. As Congress looks at the issue of tax reform, I think we can have a, a full discussion on what to do about tax policy. But in the meantime, uh, the oil and gas industry has a, a, a list of tax uh, incentives that they have, are able to take advantage of. Uh, you know, renewables at least deserve a, a level playing field on that basis alone. So, sorry, that Annie, no, that's, that's uh, kind of give you a panoply of policy Thanks. and finance and so on, but I'll stop there. Thanks. So, before I move on to Amos, if Adnan, you want to chime in at all on this topic, or I can move uh, on. It's just how many parallels you have yeah. with the rest of the world. Um, you know, what Todd was saying, incidentally, Todd got to make a speech also, I saw, but what Todd was saying about the fact that you need clarity in policy. You need durable, long-term policies. You need transparent policy that incentivizes investment and gives comfort to investors. And I think that is probably uh, one of the secrets for growth for the future. And that's happening in every market. It's not just the US. The US is pioneering many of those uh, uh, policies. And many people are looking at the example that you have. But I think uh, you know, uh, 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 secure policy is the one that drives down the cost of investment and enables people to come to the market. And I think that's what we need to really be looking at in the future. Let me just yeah. grab what, one point that I mean, there is a lot of money in the market. I think that's true. But I think it's not evenly, it's not being evenly deployed. And what we have to be careful is that we don't end up in a situation where a certain part of the world gets all the money mm -hmm. that goes into investment for these renewable <coughs> energy projects while the developing world is not. And so that's, a, that's where we have to, yes, there's a lot of money in the market, I agree, but we have to come up with a public policy that will make sure that we can get beyond that, that conflict, that problem, so that we also have the deployment of renewables in places where it's not so simple for, where the banks don't want to go as a first resort. Um, and there, get where we need sovereign guarantees, where we need public policy, where we need to, the enabling environment that I talked about earlier. I, I couldn't agree more. In fact, I, I think I was reinforcing that point because there is, there's capital there, but it's, it's the signal to the market. Exactly. And then when you think about uh, countries or elsewhere around the world, uh, I think it's even more pronounced there, the role of policy, because here in this country, in our, our utility sector, which are actually contracting for you know, power purchase agreements for renewable energy, these organizations, these companies have had very uh, high, good credit ratings. Yes. Uh, they're credit-worthy counterparties, as we say. Uh, so it's easy to you know, do a deal that uh, a financier will, will, uh, will support. In the developing world or elsewhere, it, it, it's a very different situation. Uh, the utilities aren't uh, as reliable uh, often. And that's a big issue. So I think the, 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 it is a very important role for policy in that front to step in and help address those market gaps, you know, provides guarantees, loan guarantees, insurance structures that, that give assurance to capital that they invest, make their capital available, that, that uh, you know, that, that will be supported. Uh, clearly, in, elsewhere around the world, renewable energy is really the cost advantage solution uh, for, you know, modernizing your power market, getting more reliable, resilient power, whether you're on grid or off grid. So the question really is, is how we're going to get it there. And I think there is the issue is how using these tools, and I think you, you both yeah. play a, a very important role that on, a, on a global basis, 
to come up with those structures to actually leverage the private capital, especially in the developing world. But can I just, on that, I, I think that's absolutely right. But there's another dimension. Um, there are two issues I would think are important for developing economies. One is the perception of political risk. Yeah. How durable are these policy frameworks? How reliable is the governance framework that's going to be governing uh, the sector? And there are still questions around that. But governments have done a lot to address that. There's a lot of work going on to create uh, an environment for investment today that we haven't seen before. But uh, the other problem then comes into view, which is the size of the market. You know, the US is a massive market. Uh, China is a massive market. India is huge. If you look at other countries around the world, by themselves, they don't provide the possibility for investment at scale that really lowers the cost of that investment and the cost of power generation because of the economies of scale. Uh, but what we are beginning to see is the emergence of regional initiatives. You know, what Amos mentioned about the islands. You know, we launched uh, an islands initiative. We're very closely uh, collaborating uh, with the U.S. initiative that uh, Vice President Biden launched, I must say, on a personal note, it was such a great pleasure to meet him and how sad I felt when I, I saw his recent loss was, uh, and, and my sympathies to his family. But regionalizing these issues, bringing countries together in common endeavor, changes many of the dynamics for investment. We're discussing things, for example, for the islands like common procurement. You can reduce the cost of procurement dramatically if you can do it at scale and you can do it with standards that are agreed common, uh, among, in common among these countries. We're looking at a regional initiative in Africa which we call the Clean Energy Corridor. You have the Great Rift Valley that runs all the way down the eastern side of Africa. It has the best geothermal, the best hydro, the best solar and the best wind potential in the world. How do you use it? You can use it today with the technology to generate cheap power that's going to drive the growth of a fast-growing continent in the future without exploding our carbon budget. But it requires to build markets at scale. So we're working with President Obama's Power Africa initiative, and, and what we're trying to create is a regional market for electricity, building on the interconnections that are already being uh, created between these countries, trying to develop a framework for regulation of power markets in Africa that's going to create a, a, a unified power market that can take high levels of investment, large scale of projects with uh, a guaranteed uh, electricity market. So, I mean, all of these things are, are coming down uh, the road and we're going to see tremendous change. That was actually gonna be one of my questions, so thanks for oh, answering okay. that ahead of time. <laughs> um, so now moving on to Amos. So it's a huge pleasure to be able to turn the tables on you and ask you the questions for once in my life. Um, so my question for you is, we talk a lot about energy geopolitics, energy security, means different things depending where in the world you are, but a lot of times people assume that means hydrocarbons. Could you kind of touch upon can the two to three regions or countries in the world that you think are going to have dramatically different energy policies or geopolitics in the next 10 to 20 years as they transition to more renewables? And then my other question, separate from that, um, is under Secretary Kerry, how have you seen the change from the energy security to climate security, noting the President's speech, Secretary Kerry's work on this? So if you could talk about that nexus, that would be great too. 
first, I don't think you're turning the table. I think you always told me what to do, even when you were um, at State Department. Um, but look, I think when you talk about energy security, uh, as you said, any in the in the question, it means different things to different people. And we've gotten used to, in the context recently, because of the events of the last two years, that there is a certain frame of reference of energy security since the uh, since the invasion into Ukraine. Um, to look at it from what does this mean for Europe when you're reliant on one supplier, uh, specifically in this case on natural gas. But I think the lesson there uh, should not be limited to the natural gas story. Uh, first, it's a global message of don't be reliant on one supplier, uh, whether you're uh, in the Russia context, in the Venezuela context, or I can keep the list going. But the other thing is what do you do to get out of that uh, conundrum. How, what's the solution? And the solution is diversification. And diversification, yes, it means different. We talk a lot about different pipelines of gas. It means the diversification of that route. It means the, the diversification of the supplier, of who you're getting uh, your supply from, so it's not just one supplier. But it also has to mean the mix of what you have in your own country. What is your supply? What is your energy mix? Whether it's for heating, whether it's for uh, power. And that's where I think really the renewable question and efficiency uh, both play into that aspect of energy, of providing the energy security. And in my mind, once we finish talking about the, the pipeline, that's actually the more critical piece. Because if you can change that, that, that diversification piece, that integration of renewables into your system, yes, it means investment at the beginning and heavy investment uh, at the front end and commitment of a certain policy with uh, financial commitments behind it in some places. In Europe, maybe uh, different than in, than in other regions. But once you make that commitment, and, I'll, and I would argue no different than oil and gas, if you look at some of the commitments that are required for oil and gas, $20 billion pipelines and $50 billion in some cases just for the oil fields development. Once you make that, the reliability and the access to it is yours. It's, a, it's the ultimate security. It's your responsible for your own destiny. And it's a resource that is always there, whether it's sun or if it's solar or geothermal. Uh, you know, hydro a little bit different. Uh, obviously, if, if you have, if you go to Central America and South America with El Ninos and what happens with droughts. But on the others, these are resources that you will always have. So it's, that is the aspect of the energy security pattern that you can make a real change. And as the price comes down, you got to look at what that means. That it, may, it means that it should be paramount in the policy planning aspect for each country as they look at it. And it connects to what I think what Adnan just talked about, which is the regional aspect. So yes, in Africa, we're talking about uh, power pools and corridors. But it, the interconnection that we talk about in, in natural gas is the same for grids. So if we start looking at regions working together, the cost differential of the impact of renewable energy, if I'm too small a market, I'm only too small a market if I only look at myself. But if I look at how my grid interconnection with my neighbors and beyond, then I don't think of myself as an individual country, but rather as part of a region, that changes the math. And that is able to do that. Now, I think that to, your, to the second part of your question, both Secretary Kerry and President Obama have, have been, I think, throughout for President Obama since the day he came into office, this has been a, a major issue for him, whether it comes here on domestic policy, 
as well as part of the international um, national security implications of this, of trying to articulate to people, as we just discussed today, that this is part of national security. And it's not, and look, in my mind, you want to think about, if you don't want to talk about it from the climate perspective, I disagree personally, and I think President, Secretary Kerry surely would disagree. But you, there are other reasons to look at, at this other than climate alone, if that, if that causes you heartburn, if you're that person. Um, you can still look at it from the business side, and I think Adnan did a great job in looking at this from the business and, and, the, and the job creation of the just simple makes this make sense from a business perspective of making money. Look at some of the states in, in the United States. This is not in, happening in Massachusetts and Maine. It's happening in Georgia and in Mississippi and in Texas. Mm -hmm. You're getting the examples that you've seen before. Mm -hmm. So you can look at it from any perspective that you want. But what Secretary Kerry has tried to say that this is a critical part of our national security imperative. It's a significant part of our foreign policy agenda. And that as we, if you look at it, and I think Adnan talked about it in his opening remarks, energy policy is a big part of climate policy. Because so much of the emissions that we're discussing, I think it's 84% is the latest number, of carbon emissions are energy related. So energy policy change is climate change. Uh, and if we can get that fixed, and that's why the focus of the secretary has been so public uh, on the road to Paris and not thinking about, just as I said before, Paris, but looking beyond. But it's not just that those goals that we're looking at for Paris. It's launching of Power Africa uh, two years ago as a more on the clean energy. Launching the policy in Asia of what we refer to as USASEP, uh, the US-Asia uh, comprehensive Energy uh, Partnership, uh, where we look at um, how do we work together between ASEAN, APEC, and the United States at integration of clean energy, putting money behind it, Exim Bank, OPEC, TDA, really creating the kind of financing facilities to lead the way so that the private sector can come behind it. So whether we're talking about in Asia, in Southeast Asia, in Africa, in Central America, connect with all kinds of initiatives, not just the Caribbean one, that's part of our foreign policy. That's what we think that will make, we can make an enormous difference because if we can get just to a partial success rate of what the REMAP effort says, whether it's in China or in the United States, we will be enormously successful and it will have a real impact, I think, on global national security. Thanks. Do you guys want to chime in before I move on? Or? Well, uh, I just enjoy, enjoyed the heartburn from climate. But <laughs> the combination of sunburn and heartburn can be quite painful, I think. But nevertheless, I, I, I think he's, he's uh, absolutely uh, right in terms of uh, growing the markets. You know, we've we're, we're, we're gone through a rather difficult period since 2008. We've had a very precarious economic recovery, which is often been called by a lot of people a jobless recovery. We have very advanced levels of unemployment in many countries around the world that seem to be almost structural now, especially if you look at European economies. Now, how do you get out of this? Where is the new pattern of growth? And I'll tell you what the European companies are seeing. When they engage with us in a discussion about the potential for investment in Africa and Asia and Latin America, they are the first people at the table. These are the guys years ago that if you call them up, they didn't have time. They're now coming to the table because they want to interact with these countries. They want to see the growth of regional markets. 
because European energy demand is flat, the growth markets are in the emerging economies of the world, these guys have the, the technological know-how uh, and assets to make the investment, and they're looking for those markets. How do we provide security in those markets? And I think, in a way, you have to put the onus on those economies also. You know, you have to be owners of your own growth. I, I grew up in a developing country, I grew up in Africa, and we got used to this narrative of you know, grant financing, ODA, public resources, mm -hmm. that condemned us to 30 years of poverty. Because we didn't use our resources and entrepreneurial ability to grow our own economies in, in, in a more integral way. We relied for different people to provide you little bits of funding here and there, and, and everything went in different directions. We now have the emergence of new types of economic thinking in these countries. There's a new level of ownership they're taking. Uh, I met with the Prime Minister of Ethiopia. A few weeks ago, I was in Addis to discuss the African corridor. Uh, I, was, I was really struck that the Prime Minister knew more about his energy sector than his energy minister did. You know that. Uh, uh, I felt fear for the energy minister, but nevertheless. And he had a very clear vision for what was going to happen with his country. And they're investing massively in power in Ethiopia with the vision that they're going to be exporters of clean energy at low cost to other parts of Africa and to the uh, uh, Arabian Peninsula. Now, these are new visions that are coming. And I think if we want to collaborate with them, it's not now to hand out bits of CSR or charity here and there. The issue is how do we engage in a real discussion about investment, policy frameworks, de-risking, uh, uh, risk mitigation of investment, and drawing down the cost of capital, but on the basis of guarantees about the uh, policy environment in those countries. We're going to see dramatic change that will generate employment, more importantly. I talk to African uh, decision makers all the time, and one of the greatest threats in the continent is a huge reservoir of young people who don't have jobs. This is the source of instability for the future. These are the people who will go into activities out of their resentment and frustration that will result in, in, in security implications for everybody in the future. How do we get them jobs? And it's in sectors like this where we have the opportunity for growth that we need to pursue this. Thanks. Um, so my question for you actually kind of touches upon that. So you talked about developing countries, collaboration, kind of ownership. Mm -hmm. um, and this question really doesn't have anything to do with renewables. But we talk about how by 2030, developing countries will essentially be the vast majority or the total de demand of new energy sources. Mm -hmm. IRENA has 140 countries mm -hmm. as members with 30-some on the way. Most of those are those large developing countries. And there's a discussion going on right now about how do you integrate developing countries into the kind of global energy governance discussion or energy architecture. What lessons learned are there from your experience with IRENA that can be applied to that discussion? How do you get more of these types of countries, the Chinas, the Indias, the South Africa's, more um, involved in kind of an international discussion on this, yeah. moving beyond just renewables? Well, you mentioned 140. I, I just wanted to give the good news to Amos that the Russian Federation is joining and will be with us in a few weeks. Uh, so <laughs> good luck for the next council. Uh, but having said that, the there are... The news you said, or the good news? <laughs> so you're contemplating the new challenges, yes. huh? <laughs> but, but, but that's also a signal, by the way, about the future of energy. But uh, we have 
30 others who are in the process of joining. This is in a four-year period. We've gone from 60 to 170. This indicates how people are looking at this issue uh, uh, for the future. In terms of energy governance, I've worked in governance in the international system for, for many years in environment, economic, and social affairs. I think that uh, uh, in terms of energy governance, we need a more, let me say, epistemic model of cooperation rather than a normative model. We're not going to see a future with uh, international organizations with binding normative mandates that are going to create global frameworks for everybody to align with. And I think that's for two reasons. One is that energy is an issue where there is no one solution for all countries. Every country has so much specificity in its own energy mix and its own energy path that you have to uh, uh, maintain uh, an ecosystem that allows for that diversity. The other is that energy is such a strategic issue uh, and it's such an issue of importance for your energy security which goes to economic and political security that countries are not willing to let go any level of authority to a supranational body in terms of global governance. Not going to happen. Um, just go and ask the OPEC guys if they're going to ask ARENA to run their energy policy. Uh, I think you'll get a very clear answer. But what I, what I think we can see is the approach needs to be very much a collaborative approach focusing on what actually works. And we're beginning to see with technology what actually works. There are some uh, deficits, you know. We didn't have full information on patents. We've started to develop a patents framework. Uh, we're looking at every patent on renewable energy and trying to create uh, a patents platform where anybody can go and look at what's happening there. We're trying to create a framework for standards. One of the questions I always get from ministers from developing countries is that I have 30 solar companies knocking at my door, each claiming that they have the answer to the universe. I said, how can I judge amongst them? How do we provide uh, a methodology through which they can make informed decisions? How do we give them uh, information about what they can expect in the future in terms of innovation and cost of technology? We have probably the most authoritative, authoritative costing database now. You know, we, we look yearly at you know, over 100,000 uh, uh, investments around the world in terms of technology cost. And if you have a very clear sense of how that is going to evolve over time or what's going to happen with efficiency of technology, that's vital for your decision making. And all that information is actually creating a marketplace, a global marketplace, uh, that's becoming more and more compelling by the day. So I think international governance in the sense of a normative model of governance at the international level for energy is not really going to be something that's going to move. I know that constantly there are discussions in the UN about a new energy agency. I think we will have made the whole world renewable by the time that happens. But, uh, but uh, uh, I, think that, I think we really have an opportunity for a new form of international cooperation that's a win-win scenario. You know, it's not somebody has to lose. Thanks. Amos, if you want to chime in, you can before you open up to the audience. No, I, I think that Anna is right. I think, listen, that's part of what we try to do is to work 
to identify what that role of the public sector is. And I think the governance side of energy in general is part of that is the governance, is to figure out how do you support countries in creating that, that regime in place to understand, as Adnan talked about, when you do have those entreaties from on the energy companies, but also really to come up with energy strategies. So it's not one-off decisions um, that as they come up, uh, I have a crisis, I have a power outage, I, I went, in the, you know, I went haphazardly in one direction or another, but to actually come up with something that's a little bit structured. And I agree, I'm not sure that we need more organizations. Uh, what we need is the focus and the discipline. Um, now, what we're trying to do, what I talked about before in the Caribbean, to me what we're doing is a test case that I think could apply everywhere. And that is instead of coming in and trying to provide the Band-Aid and say, we'll pay for you to do this solar farm. Uh, instead, we'll say, we'll pay for creating, bringing in the consultants and the expertise to look at how do you create an energy strategy where you incorporate the different sources of energy into your system so that it, it is rational, it works, and it's, it is able to survive for a period of time. Part of that is the coordination of the, of the donors. So it's since we're going to provide some of the funding for that, the World Bank's going to do it, uh, we're going to see different countries in, in Europe uh, and Australia, New Zealand, the EU, the Middle East, UAE, is already contributing to all these countries. Nobody knows what anybody else is giving money to, mm -hmm. sometimes across purposes. Mm -hmm. So the governance structure is never able to be built. And therefore, there's never energy a strategy or a plan put in place because it becomes too easy. Somebody, why should I do the hard work that you're asking me to do with your consultants and, and where I have to look at all these difficult questions of what do I do with my current utilities and the current laws and, and the agreements that I have. That's really hard when I have that guy over there or that woman over there willing to write a check to, you know, to build a transmission system or a solar farm. I'm not going to do it. But if we can all get together and put together that mechanism, uh, and in this case, we've asked CARICOM, the Caribbean um, uh, Secretariat, to run it together with the World Bank and the IDB. If that works, and so far we're seeing that it's, we've never done it anywhere, it actually is working, we can do that in other places where I can, I can do what I, just, what I did a few months ago, which was to call Adnan and say, I need your help. Um, this is not something that the U.S. government can do or any government. This is where the expertise is, lies. Can you develop and look into the work that you're already doing on islands? How does this play into what the islands of the Caribbean can do? And that's a resource. So it's looking at it from a more holistic perspective of having that, to your question on governance, of that's, if we can do that, I think we're going to be on a very easy road to a successful pattern and path uh, to be able to implement it. I would just add, I, this really is an important point because these, these strategies are, you know, have lasting impact. The decisions we make now, especially in, in, in these energy markets, which are capital intensive, you know, high, lots of capital, long lifetimes, the decisions we make today will have lasting impact. You know, a coal plant or a nuclear plant, the, they used to say you know, that the life is about 20, 30 years. Well, actually, they're 50, 60 years old plants now. So these decisions we make are going to be really important. Absolutely. So Absolutely. very important that you know, as people look ahead, they, they put together a strategy, look at a portfolio, and understand where these things are going in the future as well, yeah. and marry up with the environmental side as well. Yeah. But on that point, I think you just made a fundamentally important point, which is in the next five years, 
what we decide in terms of investments for future power generation are going to largely determine our mix over the next two decades. I would just those are the two decades of climate. You know, That's the window we have. Uh, uh, and you're absolutely right. When we go into uh, investments, big investments, strategic plants like nuclear, coal, uh, uh, and so on, uh, these are 40, 50 year investments. Are we ready to say five or six years down the road that we made a mistake and this is a stranded asset? Are we ready to deal with the political implications of the divestment movement hitting home in a few years' time once these decisions have already been made? Or should we be really sitting back and questioning very, very intensively which are the strategic decisions for tomorrow that we need to address today in light of what's happening with technology and cost? And I, I would one more point to just here in the U.S. And I think this is, you know, uh, an example that of elsewhere around the world too. Um, yeah. uh, you know, EIA DOE projects uh, we're going to retire 60 gigawatts of coal plants here in the U.S. by 2020. 60 gigawatts of our base load. So yeah. the issue really is, what's going to replace that? You know, because we're we have you know have to have the power. It has to support, assist, you know, the economy yeah. and so on. These are big decisions as to what's coming next. Now, yeah. uh, without fully thinking these things through, uh, you, you make default decisions, may or may not be the, the best decision, either either now or even, you know, like you said, six years. But that's where yeah. you get yeah. to marriage a little bit of the shell gas revolution and where you want to go, because mm -hmm. the low price of gas really does allow us here in the United States and around the world to see that transition, because uh, renewables are not going to be able to scale up in the rate that, we're, that you're discussing, the, the amount of new integration that was going to be necessary to replace the power. So therefore, what does replace it? What we don't okay. want is to say, since we're not ready on the renewable side yet, we're going to see new coal back out old coal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's where natural gas can, uh, with it being as cheap as it, yeah. it is now. Yeah. I just want to note that the danger of this conversation yeah. is that having three cheerleaders for, um, for this subject um, is that the, the, you can walk away from this with, I think, an overly rosy um, expectation. And this is hard. Uh, this is not going to be easy to do. We've seen goals, right? We saw the goal announced that Adnan talked about the Prime Minister Modi did in India of 100 gigawatts of solar. There's only three installed at the moment. Uh, so in the next six and a half years, they have to go from three to 100. So. I, and I don't want to say they're not going to achieve it. I'm, I'd be very hopeful that they are. But this is, um, these are really difficult places. So what we're describing, I think, is where we think not only the world should go, but it can go. It doesn't mean that it's going to. Uh, for that, you need real change to happen in the mindset around the world. You need to have those changes. And in some places, look, I, I did not come back from the conference in, in South Africa um, as hopeful as I went. Uh, I came back a little bit more disappointed. Uh, not because I, I saw the lack of understanding of the issue or the lack of desire to get there, but the lack of, or rather, the pace of implementation mm -hmm. and the politics that play in. And by the way, the politics have nothing to do with climate or with uh, one source of energy or another. It's the who are the winners and losers in every context. And when you talk about making these kinds of changes, you are dislocating somebody else. And if they don't see it as I'm going to grow my business in a new direction and identify a new opportunity, then they'll, they can do that or they can fight it. And in large cases, they fight it. 
and that creates a lot of problems. So I just wanted to make sure that we don't walk out of this room with, you know, the three of us here saying, this is great, let's all walk out and, you know, capture the mountain outside. Yeah. Um, it, there, there is a lot of challenges and, and, and a lot of hard work uh, to get us there. And, and to your point, the decision that we're going to make now are really important for the next 25, 30, 40 years, and therefore we have to double and triple and quadruple our efforts, and I think that's what you've, that's why you've seen Secretary Kerry, with everything else that's happening around the world, dedicate so much of his time uh, to, to this issue. Thank you. All right, so we're going to open up to the audience for questions. Um, we'll take a couple, because we are definitely over time, so can you be brief and say your name and where you're from? Um, yes. Hi, it's Emily Meredith from Energy Intelligence. And my question is uh, mostly for Mr. Hoxstein, but maybe for Mr. Amin as well. And that's, um, you referenced the European oil companies today talking about you know, advocating for a carbon pricing mechanism. And so I really just wanted to hear your views on how globally applicable that is, given that we didn't really see you know, US oil companies join and US policy seems to be more geared towards controlling sources of emissions. I think that it's true. These are, in the classic sense, you can say that these are European companies. I'm not sure that I necessarily buy into the, with the size of these companies, and if you look at the portfolio of these companies, outside of the headquarters being in Europe, I'm not sure that they're any more European than they are US uh, or, or other. Uh, if you look at BP's assets in the United States, in Russia, in, uh, in Egypt recently, um, these are global companies. So I would take it as these are global companies that have looked at this rather than European versus US. Uh, if you look at the number of employees these companies have in the United States, I think it would be a rather astonishing figure compared to other classically US companies. But, but I think it's a fair distinction that no US headquartered company was on a letter. I'm not sure that I've digested that enough to be able to answer you why. Uh, because I think it, what they're making is the business case. They're saying if you separate our ideology from this, we get that this is where the world is going. So you guys in government have to come up with a, should come up with a global pricing system uh, and a scheme, a financial scheme, so that we in the private sector, whether we like it or dislike it, it doesn't matter anymore, we can adjust to it. Now I think the important piece of this uh, and it goes back to what I said before. The world's changing. The, this kind of a letter would have been unimaginable just a few, just a couple of years ago. Uh, and I think that if you look at individual companies, whether they're American or other, they're all pricing carbon internally. They're not publishing it, but they all have a price of carbon, and they have a different algorithm um, to how to get to what the price should be or is, or how to what's their trading based on. But they're already doing it internally. And that's where I think sometimes our politics are a little bit behind where the business community is, because they're looking at it much more in a cold way of saying, forget the ideology, what do I do to make money? So I think this letter is bringing out into the open for the first time, in a very public way, what's already been happening internally in the companies. And I think that's happening throughout the entire, industry, the entire oil industry. I think basically companies abhor uncertainty. They don't like to have different policy differentiation in different markets. They want predictability. Whether it's a high carbon price, low carbon price, there should be one. 
And I, I think that will give the kind of stability we, we want. But, you know, the second part of it is how do we create the level playing field? You know, how do we deal with the fact that there are half a trillion dollars in fossil subsidies every year mm. and renewable subsidies pale into insignificance besides that, but all we hear about are renewable subsidies. How, how do we deal with these issues? The carbon price is the first serious possibility that we can internalize the serious costs from the fossil model of energy into its price and then create a level playing field for, for energy investment for the future. And I think that's why it's so important. And I think what these companies are looking for is that we know that we're going to go this way. We will get there much more quickly and much more efficiently if we have a common price that we understand. I think, I think that the most important element of all of that is just that uh, none is that mm -hmm. we're beginning to put uh, you know uh, the notion here of dollars and cents on all the external costs and, and and by virtue of that we should also be thinking about you know on the positive side as well so that we're really making uh, you know truly economic decisions on the merits versus you know things that kind of a bit, have been a bit skewed. Thanks. All right. So we'll take one last question. Um, the red shirt in the back. Hi, uh, Spencer Schecht, American University and Citizens Climate Lobby. It was said once today, divestment, um, it seems like softball right now, and it's more of a social statement than anything significant, but is there a way to scale that up and make it actually make a dent in climate change and renewable energy deployment? Well, I, I'm not an advocate for anything, <laughs> let me say, but it would make our life much easier if there was a strong divestment movement. But I think what, what you can observe is a growing momentum uh, among uh, various groups on the future of energy that we want to see decarbonization quickly. We want to see a climate-safe future for our children and our grandchildren. And how do we achieve that? And, and it's traditionally what's happened is the social pressure you remember apartheid South Africa. It was a social pressure. It was the, uh, the groups that went against it who asked for divestment that led to change. And I think this momentum is growing. Um, uh, it's visible in the US. It's very strong in Europe. Other parts of the world, I don't really see much happening. Uh, but these are the principal uh, places where these decisions will begin to make, be made that will roll out to others. And, and I think you're beginning to see some momentum. But Let's see what happens. I, I think the real issue is going to be uh, for many of those who are investing in energy that do you really want to take a risk in investing in a very capital-intensive, long-term uh, uh, project that in five years' time you're going to realize you cannot sustain? I think that's a much more powerful argument than the moral argument of divestment. And one thing, yeah, we. Um, at ACOR, uh, we, we wouldn't comment on the the, 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 the divestment side of the equation, mm. but actually, we're actually work, working on a paper right now that highlights renewables is a is a great place to reinvest, whatever your decision might be on <laughs> divesting or what you do with your capital. But renewables mm. are, are are a great place to reinvest, uh, and that renewables enjoy you know many of the attributes that people historically have found in mm. in the conventional energy markets. Long, long, uh, re, you know, uh, long uh, returns, secure, you know, you know uh, that, those kinds of things. So we're yeah. going to be uh, releasing this paper 
looks like at our Ref Wall Street conference uh, at the end of June this month, and we're putting it together under the guise of our, our partnership for renewable energy finance. Yeah. Thanks. So huge thanks to our panelists. Um, we're going to end the session. There's a reception outside, right outside the doors, not outside where it's pouring. <laughs> um, so thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.